Now let's turn to chapter 21, Genesis 21, 22. Genesis 21, 22 to 34. Abraham and Abimelech, 22, verse 22. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, neither did you tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Be'er Shabbat because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Be'er Shabbat, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Verse 22. From verses 22 to 34, we have in this case both a blessing and a hardship for Abraham. This is something that has been mentioned in the past that throughout Scripture and often within a chapter or often within the same paragraph, God will illustrate that something good is happening to His people, but also something difficult, some hardship, some affliction is happening. That actually happened in the early part of this chapter. The blessing of Isaac being born, the blessing of him being weaned, right? The promises are going to be fulfilled in Isaac. But at the same time, there's a hardship that encounters Abraham and Sarah that they have to remove Hagar and Ishmael from the household. And that's a real hardship, especially for Abraham and even for Hagar and Ishmael. There were hardships on them because of their sin, but not on Abraham because of sin. In this case, too, Abraham is in, the, in a different land, in a foreign land, which is near the land of Canaan where he initially went. But he went to migrate or sojourn temporarily in the land of the Philistines near the land of Canaan, just adjacent to it, to the south and to the west of it. So he has to go there. He has to survive there with his huge household and with his many flocks. So God is blessing him as Abimelech even identifies. But in the middle of this, there is this suspicion that arises from Abimelech, so he has to deal with the suspicion. There's also the complaint Abraham has about the wells, 
the wells that were seized. So he has to resolve that dispute. And then he has to swear an oath. They both swear oaths in order to make sure that they take it seriously before God. And then finally, it says in verses 33 and 34, Abraham, in thankfulness, worships the Lord, builds an altar um, there, likely, at, by the tree, and worships the Lord, and he's able to live there un, un, uh, unmolested or untormented uh, by the inhabitants for many days. Many days means many years. It's a figure of speech. So there's the blessing part toward the end. And he acknowledges that by his worship. Let's look at it in more detail now. Verse 22. Now it came about at that time. And I think at that time is at the time after the previous incident had been settled. When the previous incident had been settled... Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham. Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Why the commander? Not only as a witness to the negotiations, but also because he's got the, the authority. And we do know that Abraham had his own trained men in his own household. So they need to make sure that there's no violence one toward another. And, they, and Abimelech needs to at least bring his commander there as a show of power, right? right. Uh, and power that, listen, we, we are serious and we don't want anything to happen. If anything does happen, my commander is right here by my side and he's going to be a witness to the things that we talk about. So this is uh, ominous or serious in the sight of Abraham. Abraham, of course, does not want to instigate any war. So, what do they say together? Verse 22. God is with you in all that you do. They know from the way that Abraham's life has been and how he has been protected. Perhaps they have heard even of his victory over the kings of the east back in chapter 14 and such things. Not only his physical prosperity, but his physical protection and also perhaps the promises of God. I, th I think that that might be in mind in verse 23. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with me, or with my offspring, perhaps meaning his immediate children, or with my posterity, my descendants, maybe the next generation after his children, so his grandchildren, or even indefinitely in the future. Don't deal falsely with me. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. So show kindness to me and to the people of this land where you have sojourned. You are the stranger. You are the foreigner here. And we've been dealing kindly with you. So please reciprocate to us. Not only to me, but also to my descendants. Reciprocate the kindness we have extended to you. So when an unbeliever comes and wants such an arrangement, is if it's a reasonable arrangement, what should we do? Go with it. That's what Abraham does in verse 24. I swear it, he says. I swear. I'll do it. So when it is reasonable from an unbeliever, 
or even impacting many unbelievers like the nation of the Philistines, if it's reasonable, then go with it. What does this teach us here? It teaches us that natural law is evident or known in the heart of every man. Even a pagan idolatrous man or an idolatrous nation, they worship idols like the god Dagon, 1 Samuel chapter 5. They worship the god idol Dagon among many other gods. Dagon was one of their prominent gods. So even among idolaters, they understand how to live in peace with their neighbors, which is a part of natural law. The conscience, Romans 2, 14 to 16. The conscience, the law written on the heart that it's wrong to steal from your neighbor. It's wrong to murder your neighbor. It's wrong to commit adultery with your neighbor. It's wrong to lie to your neighbor. All of these things, unbelieving, pagan, idolaters, heathens, they know that. They know that in their heart. They even know that idolatry is wrong. Sure. But if they won't concede to that, and they will at least concede to not, uh, to not bother us, okay, let's agree not to bother each other. So this, this is what Abraham understands and he obeys, um, or agrees. He says, I swear, at verse 24. Now, when he swears, Abraham lives before Moses, right? There are some within Christianity who think that it's impossible and sinful for Christians to swear at all times and in all circumstances. And by swearing in this context, it means swearing an oath or making a vow. It's basically giving a very solemn word to someone else in the presence of God, right? That's what Abraham is doing here with Abimelech. Even though Abimelech most likely does not believe in the same God as Abraham, he's still doing this before God. Abraham is doing it before God, swearing. This swearing is not the way we say it in, in often in um, everyday, common, colloquial English when we say, Oh, well, don't, don't be friends with that man because he swears a lot. Meaning, he uses filthy, profane words. That's not the way it means it here. Okay? In the Bible, when it's talking about swearing right here, it's talking about, is it ever possible, is it ever right, is it ever godly and righteous to make a solemn promise to someone else by swearing in the presence of God? Or is it right for uh, pastors to make vows or to swear that they will be this way or that way among other pastors or before their people? Or is it right for husband and wife to swear or make vows toward, to, to one another when they are married? Is it right or wrong for people when they are in a courtroom to swear, so help me God, and put their hand on the Bible, put their, raise their hand, things like that. Can they do those things, biblically speaking, or should they not do those things? Or is it right for politicians, when they are installed and inaugurated in their offices, to swear before God and before the, all the witnesses that they will uphold everything that is written in the Constitution? Is it right or wrong for that to happen? I think based on this passage and many, many other passages, 
not just in the period, in the time of the law of Moses, but otherwise it is right and proper for us to swear or make vows in their right context. Right. To really mean it, but not make it falsely. Don't make an empty vow. Don't make a vow and never intend to keep it. Don't swear and never promise to, or, or never fulfill your oath or what you swore. Okay? That's, I think, what Abraham is doing. He is swearing in a rightful way. And so should we. Verse 25. But before it can happen, there needs to be some resolution because there's a conflict. They want peace, but in order to obtain peace, they have to remove residual conflict. So 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which which the servants of Abimelech had seized. They seized them. They stole them. They were Abraham's, but they stole them. And so this is right, to expect justice. What is Abraham expecting? Justice. Is it right for Christians, when there is a dispute, to expect justice? Yes, it's right. Abraham did, so should we. Expect justice. Expect those in authority to carry out justice. Hold them accountable to it. If you want peace, if you want law and order in society, then expect it of those who are in authority. Don't just keep quiet and say, I'll just do my own business and leave them alone. To the extent that we can, expect justice. So he expects it. And Abimelech responds, 26, I do not know who has done this thing. Neither did you tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. And according to the way this passage reads, Abimelech is telling the truth. He says, I don't know who did it, You didn't tell me until now, nor did I hear of it until today. Meaning until you told me today. I did not hear of it. Which answer was an implied, I'm going to make sure I find out what happened and resolve the problem. Because in verse 27, Abraham proceeds to take sheep and proceed with the covenant or the oath of treaty between him and Abimelech. So whatever... He meant and said in verse 26, had to do with resolving the dispute. He was going to resolve it. Now, notice also in 26, it says, neither did you tell me. Neither did you tell me. Because of the way the sequence of events unfolds here, it's likely that Abraham, being so wealthy that and being so patient and gracious, there there was a dispute, but he didn't kick and scream and make a big deal about it because he was willing to bear the loss. He was willing to turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you to go one mile, go another mile, go two miles, right? This is similar to Matthew chapter 5. Abraham, for a period, he practiced that. But it doesn't mean that you should do it indefinitely so that those who are committing injustices completely demolish you, completely do away with you. Don't do it to that extent. Do it to some extent, to the extent that it's reasonable in the context. And then when you have opportunity for justice, expect justice. And that's what Abraham does here. 
27. Now, the symbol of the covenant and the covenant. The symbol is the seven ewe lambs and oxen uh, and sheep. 27. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. So he gives them, gives these animals to Abimelech in reference to this covenant, to make this deal. Verse 28, Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. He gave him sheep, but he sets apart the seven ewe lambs by themselves. And Abimelech is curious, why? 29, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Okay, you say you're rectifying it. I believe you. But I'm also giving you this to, to represent, to symbolize the fact that I dug this well or my men dug this well. It belongs to me. So let's resolve this. And I'm giving you this to represent it. Giving you the seven lambs. 31. Therefore he called that place Be'ersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. Now, if you study the commentators, they wonder why is Be'ersheba called Be'ersheba? Um, Be'er means well, and Sheba, depending on the, the letters are the same or the consonants are the same, but the pronunciation different in order to explain um, what the word for oath is and what the word for seven is. And they sound similar too. Okay, so because of the similarities, they wonder, does this mean well of seven, meaning seven lambs, or well of the oath? And I actually think because of verse 31, it means well of oath. But they, God intentionally, or Abraham intentionally used the seven ewe lambs for the word seven that's similar to the word oath to remind the people, to remind Abimelech, that the seven lambs have to do with the oath that you made and I made before God about this well. So the name of the city became named after that exchange or that incident. Well of oath. Now, in um, English, when you see B-E-E-R, in English we have the word beer, right? But in Hebrew it is be'er. Be'er means well, a well, a water well. So that's why it's called that. So 32, after this, um, they depart in peace. It doesn't say in peace, but that's what it meant there in 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. So they are happy and satisfied, and they return, and they leave Abraham alone in that part of the land of the Philistines. And in leaving him alone, it says in 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He plants the tree there, and there he calls on the name of God. 
Now, a tree would be a very good place to sit, meditate, worship, because it's a desert land. There's not very many places of water and, and coolness. So that's the reason for him associating the thankfulness by the tree, because the tree grows and he's able to enjoy its shade. So then, it, when it says, Call in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He called on the name of the Lord. This expression, to call upon the name of the Lord, first occurs in 426. And then and this is said of the people in the generation of Adam and Seth and Enosh. Okay, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Abraham does it in chapter 12, verse 8, 13, verse 4, by building an altar. In our verse, it does not explicitly say he built an altar. But then in 26.25, Isaac also calls on the name of the Lord. All of these patriarchs called on the name of the Lord. If we cross-reference this phrase, call on the name of the Lord, with Joel 2.28-32, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We know there in Joel that explicitly it does have to do with Prayer to God, worship of God, and even in reference to salvation. Even prayers in reference to salvation. Then, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, he says the following. 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. So, the tested stone, costly cornerstone, firmly placed... Whoever takes refuge in that stone firmly placed will not be disturbed, will not be shaken up, will not stumble, will not be put to shame, right? Okay. Romans chapter 10 now. Romans chapter 10. As you're finding Romans 10 verse 8, who did Abraham call upon? Who did Joel call upon? Who is it that Isaac was teaching the people to call upon and trust. Who was it that the generation of Adam, Seth, and Enosh trusted? Who was it that Isaac called upon in Genesis 26, 25? Who did they call upon? It says the Lord, but who is the Lord? <laughs> Can we specify? Yeah. Romans 10. Romans 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, there's one more verse I should mention, and that is Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14. Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, wherein Paul cites verse 14 right here. 10, verse 8, Romans 10, 8 is a citation of Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. So Moses also... We've mentioned Adam, Abraham, others. Now Moses also, when he's preaching the word, 
What is the word that's near the people of Israel that they should believe? Word in reference to what? In reference to whom? He tells us. Verse 8, remember, he says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. <clears throat> what Moses preached, he cites right here in verse 8. But he says, what Moses preached, we are preaching. Right. The word of faith which we are preaching. Then, the content of the preaching, the content of the word is in verse 9. What, what is it? That... If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's the content of the word of faith. That's the content of what we are preaching. That's the content of the word that is near the people of Israel in the ministry of Moses. And he says, it's Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses. So there's the open confession of it, resulting in salvation. That's, that's the content of calling upon the name of the Lord. That's the content of calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. That's the content of believing in this costly cornerstone that will not be moved. Further, verse 11. For, he proves his statements here in verses 11 to 13. For, the, the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He quoted Isaiah 28, 16. That's his proof that we should believe in Christ. Whoever believes in Christ will not be disappointed. 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 12, no distinction between Jew and Greek, meaning whether you are Jewish or Gentilic, whether you are a Hebrew or among any of the nations of the world, it doesn't matter. And he says, the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For all who call upon him, as Joel said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Citing from Joel chapter 2. And then we have to ask, was Adam a descendant of Israel? Kind of. <laughs> Was, was Abel a descendant of Israel or Abraham? Or was uh, uh, Enoch or Noah, were they descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Were they called Hebrews? The first time that comes is in Genesis 14, 13, where it calls Abram the Hebrew. That's the first time. So the Hebrew race, the Hebrew nation did not exist in the time of Adam, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, right? They were not circumcised. Abraham was circumcised, we learned, when he was 99 years old, Genesis 17. 
So, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved means it doesn't matter who you are, from what nation you are, what language you speak. It depends on calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Believe he died and rose again for your sins, which Adam and Noah and all the rest did. Then you shall be saved. Yes, that's the one gospel. So that's what Abraham is rejoicing in. He is worshiping God. He's presenting the fruit of the lips, it says in Hebrews 13, 15, which offers thanks to God for salvation. And Abraham's doing that. And he lived there, back to Genesis 21, 34. Abraham sojourned, meaning temporary, he lived there, temporarily he lived there in the land of the Philistines for many days. Even though the land of Canaan was promised to him, he lived in the land of the Philistines with somebody else. There too, we're reminded. He's enjoying peace, he's enjoying prosperity, he's able to worship God without anyone tormenting him in the land of the Philistines. So those are blessings to him, but he still does not have descendants that he actually sees physically or spiritually as numerous as the stars of the heaven or the sand of the seashore. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have his descendants possessing all of the land of Canaan physically. He doesn't have that yet, but he believes. Just like God had been prom promising other things to him, and one by one they are being fulfilled, yeah. and the same way one by one these will be fulfilled. The same thing with us. We might land in the, uh, live in a land of strangers. It might be difficult for us, but God will take care of us. However many days we have to live there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.